Thanks for coming, everyone. What you see on the screen there is the front cover, essentially, of the report, which is now basically complete. I've opened up the Google Doc so people can look at it. You'll get a link about it probably tomorrow. And then I've sent it out to people who I've mentioned in it extensively, okay, it's work I've drawn on, so they can tell me if I've made any errors in interpretation, if they're happy with the way I've used it. And, and generally to people over the next few days, if people have any comments to offer about this should have been included or that shouldn't be or anything like that, uh, that there's an opportunity to message. So you, you'll get to see that tomorrow. This evening, I'm going to talk about the two chapters that I didn't talk about last time. So last time I, I went through the concept of iatrogenic deaths, of doctoral medically induced deaths, of uh, the masking and of lockdowns. And I also went through the conclusion of the report last time. So there's two further chapters on vaccines and on, well, it was on PCR, but I've turned it into a bit of a, a viral origins chapter. So that's what we're going to look at. Was anyone not here last time? Okay, so that's fine. I'll do a quick recap of like, I won't talk about masks or lockdowns again, but I'll do a quick recap of this concept of iatrogenic death, which just means medically induced death. Uh, I, I got in trouble last time because I, I told myself, for okay, you've got to define iatrogenic because it's not. Iatrogenic. So iatros is the Greek word for doctor. So it's yeah. doctor-induced death. Okay, and I'm I didn't know what it meant six months ago, so I'm just being smart, sounding like saying it now. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps that. So I'll just go through. That a little bit of that again, because everything else is kind of foundational upon it, and also there has been a development in that. So um, now, where's my clicky thing? Here we go. That works. So, on the basis that there is this evidence that the virus is cycling around the world in 2019, whatever you think about that, whether there is a virus or not, there's all these sources. Well, whatever it is, it's there prior to prior to February, March of 2020. What you see throughout 2019, up until mid to late March 2020, is absolutely nothing in terms of excess death, both in the United States or in Europe. So on the graph there, you can see the on the United States graph, it's a relatively flat line. It's just the graphs are set a bit different. And on Europe, you can see the, um, the winter bumps in mortality for the flu season every year. And then you get over the winter bump of 2019 going into 20. And just past where I've drawn that sharp red line, that's something I've introduced, there's this massive hike in excess mortality out of the flu season and immediate. So that line is exactly where the World Health Organization declared a pandemic and gave the advice to ready your hospitals. Okay, so it's not really consistent that you would have nothing going on and then everything kicking off right at the same point, just massively. And what that pointed to for some doctors, some scientists said, well, look, this is not the signature of a virus. This is a signature of whatever ready your hospitals means. Those kind of changes are made to the health systems. And those were the iatrogenic deaths. So if we look, do we say, oh, yeah, just to take that a bit further, um, you can see the vertical lines there are the point at which countries went into lockdown. And you see very little to no excess mortality before the point of lockdown. And what you see is the first country to go into lockdown is... Italy, and it's the first country to experience excess death. And the last country is Great Britain, last country to experience it, and the rest are, are in between. Now, I'm not suggesting that being required to stay in your house for a couple of weeks causes you to potentially drop dead, but lockdown is the point at which 
all the more drastic changes to the medical system had already been implemented. So do we see them if we look? Well, this is a report from Amnesty International. I talked about it last time, just very quickly mention it again. Came out in October of 2020, where they talk about what was done to all people in the UK at the point where that red line was, where 25,000 of them were chucked out of the hospitals and none of them were let in the hospitals again. It doesn't matter how sick they are. They were all told to grit their teeth and stay in the care homes. Doctors wouldn't go into care homes. Staffing levels were reduced because if your mother's cousin's auntie had some kind of snivel now and you were at a barbecue with them in 1994, you couldn't go to work, okay? <laughs> so obviously that has a dramatic effect on the level of care people are able to get and that cuts into things like fluids and all sorts. And we also see a spike in end-of-life drugs, like in this example, midazolam, correlating with the, the spike in deaths. Now you could say, well, maybe the deaths are driving the midazolam. I mean, people are dying more, so they need end-of-life drugs. But for various reasons, um, like just looking at the kind of doses they were being handed out in, we can say that the midazolam is cause of the deaths and not the other way around. So what's happened since I spoke to you last about this is, um, you might remember, uh, Abbotswood was big in the press three years ago, ended in criminal charges not being brought, but being investigated. And in the space, in between COVID being a thing, um, over the next three months, 20 people died in Abbotswood. Okay, and the, the managers there were roundly vilified, apparently spat on in the street at times, uh, also called murderers, uh, for seemingly for having lax kind of requirements on the home for entry and so on and letting the virus in. So we actually met one of them and had a, a long discussion last week and they provided a statement or inclusion in the report. They made their own report to the, um, the COVID committee but they provided like an extract of that for us, which, which I've included. Um, they had very stringent procedures throughout COVID. The, the staff were staying in the home, staff that weren't in the home were self-isolating. Um, I'll just I'll keep it short, you can read it in the book, but it was like really stringent there. And um, at a certain point, they started to have a staffing crisis because of these stringent requirements on people isolating if they had contact with anyone who may or may not have had COVID. So the staffing levels got difficult. They reached out to the Department of Health and Social Care for help, and the department ultimately took over, took over the running of the home. We don't think there's anywhere else that happened in the British Isles, to the best of our knowledge. It's an unprecedented thing for the Isle of Man. Up until that point, two people had died at Abbotswood. And these were people on end-of-life care, in any case, they've come out of nobles uh, on that. After that point, in the two weeks following, there were 14 deaths after the department took over. And what you have from my witness accounts at Abbotswood is the heavy use of end-of-life care. People being denied fluids, denied food, and heavy use of end-of-life drugs like midazolam. So that's like the Isle of Man example of what we're seeing in the amnesty board. There's a total continuity between them. So that's, that's the amendment to the Yashchei Death chapter. We move on to something less controversial now, uh, the vaccines. So it probably is, like out of all the things that have gone on COVID, the most uh, controversial aspect of it, most divisive aspect maybe. Lockdown's going to end, masks can be taken off, but this idea of having something injected into your body is just like, that's a line for, for some people moving across. And for other people who see the world in a very different way, it's... Um, horrendous that people just wouldn't take this simple, safe, effective medical procedure. So you have this tension brought into society by it, um, exasperated by politicians. So it's almost comical, it is comical to watch 
particularly the, the Democratic politicians now in charge of the United States, saying how they weren't going to take vaccines when Trump was in charge, you know, because they were going to be dangerous and who trusts the FDA really and, and so on, and then do a complete 180 on that. But maybe not surprising to see politicians take advantage of that, but even society's supposed radicals uh, came out, and Noam Chomsky there, a uh, great critic of empire, but like suddenly lost that humanitarian streak and wanted people locked in their homes and believed the government could save us all from a virus. Um, and this is what what was going on. That the, the it's not just Democratic voters actually, but they were in the majority of it over in the states that were advocating for people to be locked in their homes or locked in camps or have their children removed in really disturbing numbers. It's incredibly tense time, which we've just sort of moved out of a bit now. In Britain, I think there was an effort to avoid this kind of tension by having someone who was a respected public figure who cut across party lines take charge of the vaccine campaign and be the public face of it. Unfortunately, he wasn't available, so we got Tony Blair instead. Oh. And, uh, and uh, yeah, calling for a two-tier society, essentially, for the, the well, the, the vaccinated to have more rights, or you could say the unvaccinated have less. Okay, yeah, people um, on the verge of quitting jobs, people felt a lot of pressure over that. And ultimately, it did kind of collapse. Like, which it did, that wasn't necessary necessarily going to be the case at the start. It could be, we could be living in a world now where governments can mandate these things and you can't go to work. So this isn't new. This is from like the Depression era in the United States, about the 1930s time, where you have the, uh, the idiot anti-vaxxer there leading all the global fools over the cliff into the, the ocean of smallpox beneath them. So um, there's always been this kind of like angst against states of awards for some reason love vaccinations as being the preferred health measure. And this is the way people who, who object to that have been, have been viewed. This is from the other side of the other perspective of it. Um, uh, the affront to liberty that vaccination is of people being physically restrained and vaccinated. And this kind of thing happened. There's accounts, I put one of them in the report and a few more in the end notes of police arriving at a factory, a cloth factory, where women are working and barricading the doors and doctors going in and holding the girls down and vaccinating them, and, or brawls in the streets where men were dragged out of pubs and forced vaccinated against smallpox. You could say, like, we don't have that kind of brutality today, or maybe we just have a more subtle way of doing it because your right to work could get revoked if you don't have them. So, and, yeah, um, <clears throat> it's not a cult. Like this. <laughs> I mean, I guess some people think this makes sense, but, you know, obviously I look at it, I'd imagine you too, when you see like a TV show with a man in a beard dressed as a vaccine, dancing to celebrate the vaccine, you know, it doesn't necessarily compel me. Um, vaccine supporters will cite statistics, like this is where the kind of vision comes in. Okay, so you look here, obviously vaccines work and obviously they're highly effective. Because you look at the measles rate, it's going on throughout the 20th century, uninterrupted until the point the vaccine is brought in. And then you see this sharp decline uh, and until it really goes away. This is the case rate of measles, okay? But if you look at the, or like the mortality rate from measles, it actually collapses. That arrow at the end there is where the vaccine's brought in. So it completely collapses throughout the 20th century with a bit of a spike in the First World War. Um, so then the, the vaccine really didn't affect mortality that much. And it's the same for a whole range of diseases, including scarlet fever, for which there wasn't a vaccine. And this is the decline in mortality from vaccination, uh, from measles as compared to scurvy. So scurvy is simply the, the deficiency of vitamin C. And measles is not simply a deficiency disease, but um, it's, it's linked to. So what you're really probably seeing, what you really are seeing, is improved nutritional standards across society, leading to a 
uh, general improvement in health and vaccination is, is kind of piggybacking on that. Uh, the three wise men came along and the meaning of lockdown changed from two weeks to flatten the curve and all these mathematical models for why that made sense through to we now need you to stay home until we get a vaccination. And Tedros on the, on the left there said it was just irresponsible to allow a virus to run wild. What he really meant was irresponsible to let people out of their homes, but you can't say that because you sound like a megalomaniac. So he said it's irresponsible to let a virus run wild. And Bill Gates talked about society not being the same until we got a vaccination. It's going to be a permanent lockdown world. Um, there was no great reason, judging by the history of the companies, to think this was going to work out particularly well. You're talking about pharmaceutical companies with fairly extensive criminal records for fraud. And that seemed to used to be common knowledge, particularly on the political left, that pharmaceutical companies weren't to be trusted, but they seem to have rebranded themselves somehow to become the great saviors and heroes. But if you're going to predict how it would work out when you hold, you know, dangle billions of dollars in front of them and ask them to be first to get it, you, you might not think necessarily it's going to work out well. And it, it seemingly didn't, right? So there's a, a researcher from Pfizer or one of the labs Pfizer used talked about how they were rigging their control groups, essentially, uh, amongst a whole lot of other things in poor record keeping to get the results uh, they wanted. It's kind of what you might expect, really. Um, and then you have the claims, Pfizer's 95% effective claim is probably the most famous. Oxford, AstraZeneca, they went a bit further. They claimed 100% effectiveness. That's not untrue, okay? But when people read that title, I don't think what they hear in that is there were 10,000 people in a vaccine group and 10,000 people in a control group and five people in the control group went to hospital and zero people in the vaccine group did. So that's five and zero. The difference is 100%, right? So it's 100% effective. That's, I mean, the, the technically, you know, relative risk reduction might be an apt statistic to use in some circumstances, but that's clearly not what people are hearing when they read it in the Daily Mail. So it's deception, basically. Um, okay, so how did it work out, right? Given, given the, the, these enterprises are criminal enterprises and they forward studies and so on, you wouldn't expect it to work out well, but apparently it was great. Right? COVID deaths rare amongst the fully vaccinated. If we look at the CDC study here, uh, the line at the top, that's deaths amongst the vaccinated and down at the bottom, just barely, barely above zero. That's, oh no, that's deaths among the, un, uh, the high line is deaths amongst the unvaccinated, sorry. And down at the bottom, that's the vaccinated, hardly dying at all. So amazing, this is like, this is like washing your clothes in really dirty water and having them come out clean. It's a miracle, right? You wouldn't expect it, but there it is. And there is a problem though, because this is the, um, the vaccine adverse events reporting uh, system in the United States. And what you see is all the years, tiny little levels. What is that? Like a few hundred, maybe just over a thousand. And then 2021, it shoots up to over 20,000 reports of deaths. So both of these things can't be true, right? It's, something's got to give here. Now it could be that this one is wrong. It could be that um, people started paying attention more because these were only out on a uh, not the full license. The doctors were more critical, more ob observing of them because they were pushed on people a lot. Maybe people were making specious claims. We don't know. Or, or it could be that this is a, a statistical illusion. Okay, so how would we find out? Well, we'll turn to this guy, Mr. Donald, Professor Norman Fenton. He's a professor of mathematics specializing in risk at uh, Queen Mary's University, recently retired. And um, he had a team that looked at the vaccine statistics and how. Um, it might be that you could thought potentially like rig statistics and then did that happen? Did that happen in the real world? So one way you could do it, hypothetically speaking, is to miscount 
the unvaccinated or overcount them. So what you have here is a group of, uh, how many people is it? 10,000, okay? And there's word comes in that a virus is coming from the far side of the world. So a lot of the group go out and get vaccinated. And then the virus hits and 100 people die. And when the autopsies are done, 20 of those 100 were unvaccinated and the remaining 80 were vaccinated. So what does that tell you about vaccine efficiency? Well, nothing, because you need to know how many people in the wider society were vaccinated or not. So if the Office of Statistics comes out and says, look, only 10% of the population were unvaccinated, but 20% of the deaths were vaccinated, or unvaccinated, that means the vaccine is really effective, okay? 10%, um, 10% unvaccinated, 20% of the deaths unvaccinated, it worked, it saved lives. However, if the, the statistics office then come out and say, oh, oh, hang on, hang on, made a mistake, turns out it was 30% that were unvaccinated. Well, now 30% were unvaccinated, but only 20% of the deaths were unvaccinated. So the vaccine actually had a counterproductive effect. It was actually helping the virus along and killing these people. So the point is, you can manipulate how good the vaccine appears by getting that figure right or wrong. Okay, so this is it's a real-world evidence this happened. Uh, yeah, so... Professor Fenton's team submitted a complaint to the UK statistics regulator uh, asserting that the Office of National Statistics had done just that. What they'd done is they'd used a 2011 census um, and they'd also needed people to be registered with a doctor to be counted. So if you think about people who A, aren't on the census and B, aren't registered with a doctor, are they more or less likely to be unvaccinated? Well, people who aren't registered with a doctor are considerably more likely to be vaccinated. So they got rid of a lot of the unvaccinated people and estimated a figure of 8% unvaccinated, where um, it was actually the figure used in the BBC documentary, Unvaccinated, although the BBC's own survey revealed, at a minimum, a 20% unvaccinated figure. So when you shift from 8% to 20%, you've just made the vaccine look a lot more effective. The statistics regulator upheld that complaint, and you can see it down the bottom there. Uh, I'll just tell you, basically, yeah, the, the Dr. Fenton's team were right about that, and the Office of National Statistics had overcounted, but they say that the Office of National Statistics should not be relied upon to give accuracy in vaccination, and they actually, the, the uh, Office of National Statistics acknowledge this, okay? So fair enough, they say you shouldn't rely on us, except, let's go back a bit, COVID deaths rare among fully vaccinated Office of National Statistics, so they are being relied upon, even though they don't claim to do analysis that can be. Um, okay, Let's look at one more uh, statistical illusion that comes. So something um, Professor Fenn noticed in the, the numbers put out, okay, like if I told you that, okay, uh, people have the COVID vaccine and then they die less often of COVID. So the unvaccinated die of COVID more often than the vaccinated. Okay, this room might not believe me. Most people would. Most people, yeah, it makes perfect sense, right? But then I said, well, what about, what about non-COVID-related illnesses? Okay, if you saw the vaccinated die, dying far less than the unvaccinated for diseases other than COVID, and if you look with the red circle there, it's, um, it's what's the statistic in? It's, it's in life years, okay? So this is taking the person's age into account because vaccinated people tend to be older, so you have to control for that. But what it comes out with, that the, the, the unvaccinated are dying 60% more than the vaccinated for things unrelated to COVID, right? which is quite incredible. Because it could, it could mean that the vaccinated are just far, far healthier portion of the population. Like the unvaccinated, the reason they're unvaccinated, they don't care about their health. So they don't bother to stop slurping cheeseburgers down to go and get the shot. Um, however, that would mean all observational studies about vaccines could just go straight in the bin because just, you're just looking at two different populations and no one's claiming that. There's a few other um, 
things that are called maybe account for it, which are the, the, the statistics regulator did not uphold the complaint in this. They say, no, the, the Office of National got this one right, because what it is is people who are terminally ill aren't getting vaccinated. So they're dying as unvaccinated, and that's what's pushing it up. But actually, it seems that people who are terminally ill will rush to be vaccinated first. Okay, so um, what could account for this strange thing? And you see, actually, um, this is just from the last month of the report, and the effect disappears. We're unvaccinated. They now die of non-COVID-related uh, issues much less than people who have been recently vaccinated, but about the same rate as people who have been vaccinated at all. It kind of gets, gets strange. Okay, and if you look at it as a graph, uh, this is what it appears as. So the blue line is the unvaccinated, as you can see, and the graph starts when the vaccine's rolled out first. So what happens is people get vaccinated and the unvaccinated start dying off in droves. There's something about getting vaccinated that causes the unvaccinated to die. It's kind of a weird phenomenon. Um, so what Professor Fenton asserts is going on here and has, this is somewhat disputed, Right, but the Office of National Statistics do say they do this on the website. The American CDC say they do it. If you think about these vaccines, they're not meant to be effective for two to three weeks after you get the shot. Okay, so if you're looking at efficacy, it doesn't make sense to count. You know, if I get the vaccination today, it doesn't make sense if I count I get COVID tomorrow and get ill with it to say I was vaccinated because it's, I'm not really I'm not really vaccinated vaccinated until three weeks into the future. So. The Office of National Statistics are supposed to keep two different sets of records, that set of records, uh, but obviously that would be terrible for measuring safety. Obviously it would be terrible, because if I get the vaccine today and die tomorrow, I can count as an unvaccinated person. And what Professor Fenton's team say they're doing is they're not, they're conflating those statistics, right? And that's why you get this sharp rise in unvaccinated deaths. These are really vaccinated people, okay? And you can see it by age stratifications, because if there was something that was killing people all at once, you'd expect it to happen all at once. But what happens is the, the top bar graph there, line graph, sorry, is um, that's the over 80s. And then the next one down is 70s to 80s. And the next one down is 60s, 70s. So what you see is there's a spike as the vaccines rolled out, but they're not <coughs> congruent with each other. Like the, the over 80s start dying first, and then the 70s to 80s, and then the 60s, 70s. And that corresponds with the date which the vaccine is rolled out. So. Um, it really seems to be the only thing that makes sense of the data. So you have miscounting and misclassification errors that are skewing the statistics. Uh, another thing they found, this is not a statistical analysis, freedom of information request. So they put freedom of information requests into various hospitals and trusts to see how they were counting, how they were keeping records. And they found some of them were only counting people as vaccinated if they were vaccinated in that hospital trust area. The other thing they found was um, a national vaccine database came online in June and there were some hospitals that miraculously nobody died who was vaccinated until the vaccine database came online and then something about the vaccine database caused the vaccinated to start dying. No, of course, they, they just weren't keeping records. So everyone was unvaccinated until the, the database came on. So that's how you get these headlines in, in the paper about vaccine efficacy and the 95% of all the people in the hospital were unvaccinated. It's like what is meant by unvaccinated is completely ambiguous. Um, so they weren't a miracle, they were a magic trick, essentially a statistical sleight of hand. And when you see it, you can't unsee it. When you, when you see, you know, the magicians on Britain's Got Talent, they pull the rabbit out of the hat, I can't believe they faked that. But then you see the secret compartment and you can never, you can never see it the same way again. Where are we? Oh, okay, yeah, and the safety signals. So actually, like, when you go into that data of the safety signals, uh, then it pops out and... Um, <laughs> An analysis of it comparing to like the rates that should exist in these different diseases show that it's not just people uh, overly observing things. There is uh, genuine safety signals. Same, same kind of tricks are done with 
um, pregnancy, of not, not counting people who are unvaccinated or vaccinated prior to pregnancy as being vaccinated and having something called survivor bias, of like changing the, the start point when you were measuring. Um, so, yeah, it's a whole statistical bag of tricks. So this is a relatively short bit, and it's a relatively short chapter on PCR. PCR is kind of inherently leads into scientific arguments. So what you notice about that is I didn't mention spike proteins once, right? So I stay away from any kind of scientific questions and uh, you get dragged down, it's my particular style, get dragged down into technicalities and deal with the numbers. Now I appreciate, I whipped through that fast and I just like spend hours and hours and hours like staring at these and go back and forth to understand it. So I would fully understand like people, you might not have got your head around everything I said there because I wouldn't if I was in the audience, but I can promise like, if I sat down for 20 minutes and explained it, you would go, oh, okay, yeah, I see it now. Whereas with like scientific issues, you could be doing like, you know, a degree to be able to understand it. So that's why I waited towards that. So this is um, the chapter viral origins. Okay. So this is the BBC from the uh, 3rd of January. Okay. Mystery virus. Okay. So what's mysterious about it at this point? Okay. At this point, the Chinese, some point in December, doctors in Wuhan started noticing the mystery virus and they had maybe a couple of dozen people deal with it. No one died. No one died until the 8th of January. There was one death, retrospectively, was thought to have been COVID in December, but no one died until the 8th of January. By the 8th of January, the CDC were very alarmed and offering to send experts over. That's a Centers for Disease Control in America. The United Nations had their action team ready, their international response team. Big Tom Cruise is in it. Um, the World Health Organization was concerned and gearing up. Hong Kong and Taiwan had started to institute border checks for people coming from Hubei province based on a few people in a city of 9 million having the flu, right? So you might think, okay, at the time, the cynical looked at this and went, yeah, yeah. And maybe if you weren't so cynical, you'd look and think, oh, I guess it's some like weird virus, right? Like they've got green goo coming out of their ears or something, or they're growing second heads, something. And you, later on, you probably got that impression, right? Because like people are dropping dead in the streets and it's all kind of crazy over there. But none of this is true, of course, right? This is like, these are propaganda videos. And you could say, well, there's random internet propaganda videos or they could be directed by the Chinese Communist Party. But either way, like there is no zombie land. There are no, like people are not just walking out of their shopping and going zonk in the streets. That's not the way, even if you think COVID is very dangerous, it's not dangerous in that way. And everyone sort of agreed on that. So, so, so what was the, this mystery? mystery? Right. Um, why did it, it's, it's not, not death, death rate, rate and it's not the symptoms because the symptoms are <laughs> the same for the flu. The only thing different about COVID is more chance of killing you, apparently. But you can find a difference that maybe people lose their smell more, but it's hardly unprecedented. People lose their smell with flu. So what were they looking at? Just for a contrast, right? New York had a bad flu season in 2018. 28,000 people were in hospital. New York is comparable in size to Wuhan. Wuhan is known as Smog City. Okay, so it might not have been 28,000 people, but you're talking thousands and thousands of people would have been at hospitalization levels in Wuhan with flu, but doctors picked out two or three dozen of them and said, oh, it's a special flu they've got. It's, it's a new, we think it's a new virus. Um, I just put, this is Germany in March of 2018. 17,000 excess deaths in a month. I don't know about outside flu season. Does anyone remember hearing about that? And the big panic about it and how they thought it was a new virus in the Bavarian sausage markets and uh, the world actually about it. No, I, I mean, it might be a thing, right? And I, but I couldn't find it by looking for it. Maybe if I put the right German words in, there'd be the great catastrophe of, of March 2018. But 
like a signal that strong did not seem to set the world on fire, right? But two, two, three dozen people getting the flu in Wuhan um, does. So by early January, before anyone died, uh, the, there was a, a virus had been identified. All of the viruses, all of the causes had been ruled out. And we had a new virus, okay? The genetic sequence for this, uh, as a computer code, was then passed on to researchers in Germany. And by, I think it was the 13th of January, they had submitted a test that could identify this new virus and only this new virus uh, to the Welfare World Health Organization. And it's off the back of that and not excess deaths. I suppose that combined with the reports from China, um, which I wouldn't say are particularly, <coughs> like you can't even get Chinese mortality figures on things like our world and data, because you know, who knows what the Chinese government is putting out. Um, it's, it's off the back of the accuracy of these tests. You have to believe that Chinese scientists were able to accurately identify a new virus and get its coding right down. And then the computer code they gave to the German researchers, they were able to develop a test and nothing could possibly go wrong with that. And I hope not because that test shut down the world. That's what was going on. People were doing in Italy that, oh, you've got it too now. We need to, that combined with the propaganda. Okay. And um, for those that do understand these things, um, they did object. There's a, a whole team of uh, microbiologists and doctors uh, did a, a scientific paper calling for a retraction of the course of Roman review, the, 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 the paper that pushed the PCR test for COVID, saying it was completely flawed. For one, that it was based off computer code and not a virus. They, they, never, they did not build the PCR test with a live virus present. They did it on a, a model of it. And uh, the, all the issues like the review process, the, the peer review process being one day long. So, yeah, potential to be flawed. Um, of course, like you have fundamental problems with PCR, Two, like the, 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 the cycle threshold issue that everyone's agreed. PCR takes something that's very small, looks at its code and replicates it and replicates it and replicates it until it gets very big. But every replication introduces errors. So if you go above a certain number of cycles, uh, it comes crashing down. And um, Kerry Mullis, the inventor of it, was, was cynical, let's say, about, the, um, about its use in diagnosing disease or telling anyone that they're ill because if you go low enough, you can find anything in anyone. There's also a new, this back to Norman Fenton, there's also, I think this, this is the last bit of math, don't worry, like there's also um, a numerical issue with uh, PCR, okay? So I'm gonna pick on you, right? If I gave you a test for a virus, okay? And I told you, I can actually promise you this test is like, let's just say, uh, I've messed up now, uh, a condition. If I give you a test for a condition, right? Maybe not a virus. So it's 99% accurate. And I promise you, and I can show you the sign, you agree, it's 99% accurate. And you test positive. What do you think the chances are you have that condition? Almost certainly. Okay. What if it's a pregnancy test? <laughs> Definitely wrong. Definitely wrong. So you need to know another condition, right? There's a 99.99999% certain test that tells you you're pregnant. You're going to say that's wrong. Okay. So... With a test, let's agree, let's, let's agree that the PCR test is 99% accurate for, for a moment, okay? What does that tell you if you get a positive test? Well, imagine a society of 10,000 people, okay? Now imagine, we just happen to know, like God's eye view, we know that, that 10 of them have a virus, okay? And all 10,000 take a test, because they don't know, so they need to find out. So who gets positive, right? Well, the 10 people with the virus, they all test positive, obviously. But then if there are the 100, Without the virus, test positive. There's 10,000 people, 1% is 100, 1% inaccuracy. So you've got 110 people. So that's not 99%. That's 9.1%. <laughs> okay. So 
to know how accurate a test is, you have to know the prevalence of the disease. So the prevalence of pregnancy in men is zero. So it's zero percent. And the prevalence of the virus in society is 10 in a thousand. So you have to factor that in. So there's a fundamental mathematical issue with PCR too, that's irrespective if it was super duper duper accurate, it would still be deeply inaccurate without knowing the prevalence. Okay, this is the final thing I'm going to talk about. I'm going to take a sip of water before we do. Uh, faith in quick tests leads to epidemic that wasn't. This is a, an article from the New York Times a few years ago about a hospital in New Hampshire, okay, where one of the nurses developed a cough and it, it didn't go away for a while. And then one of the doctors developed a cough and that was a bit stringent too. And then a couple more people did, one of the patients did. And they had an expert in virology there. Well, maybe this is whooping cough, right? And that would be really bad because we've got vulnerable immuno-naive children and we've got vulnerable old people. So if there's an outbreak of whooping cough, this could really kill a lot of people. We need to take this very seriously. Brought in the tests, the test said, it's whooping cough, you've got whooping cough. Okay, they've got whooping cough. So everyone's masking. A lot of the staff are furlonged until they can find out if they've, they've got it or not, waiting for their test results to get back. They've got to order the tests in. A load of beds are closed down. They're moving patients to all the hospitals. And this goes on for months, right? And everything seems to confirm that there is whooping cough and they're just, they're just keeping it under control. Eventually, they send some of the tests to the lab just to have a double check. And a lot of them were apparently didn't think there's any point in this because it was so obvious that they had whooping cough and the, the measures to keep it under control. They, uh, they did it, though, and they didn't have whooping cough, right? There was no whooping cough present. And this was like, imagine the shock, right? That they took serious actions. They closed down beds. They closed down emergency beds because of this. Now, that would have had some impact and probably had some very detrimental impact. But at the same time, it's one hospital, right? So there are other hospitals that can take, take the strain. Um, off that, so it's not absolutely cataclysmic, uh, but it, it became the pandemic that wasn't. What it was concluded was just a few people had a, a bad cold, right? And it seemed unlikely to them that so many of them would have a persistent cough. But if you think about all the hospitals in the United States, say, what are the chances that one of them, a slightly high number of staff, will have a bad cough one year? Well, it's, it's guaranteed, right? So it's like a misunderstanding of numbers led them down, and, and then a reliance on tests led them down this kind of sensible little path. But, one that was really bad. So what I'm, um, what I'm obviously proposing is that COVID might have been a global example of this, right? Where something of nothing happened in China, tests were based on it. Because of those tests, we went into lockdowns. Those lockdowns then killed a lot of people for the atrogenic factors. The deaths confirmed that the tests were right. There was a deadly virus there all along, see? So now we have to do more of it more deaths, it's a virus, so we don't need to hand out antibiotics, no one gets their antibiotics, even more people die. Well, now we need the vaccinations, more people die again. Okay, now we're, you know, we're in this eternal struggle with a virus that's a kind of an illusion. So that's, uh, throughout history, you know, human literature from Odysseus onwards has warned about this idea of self-fulfilling prophecies. And the red balloon uh, here is how I end this chapter. It's a reference to the, the song 99 Red Balloons, about 99 red balloons flying over a country and the, the military mistaking it for an attack from an enemy country, okay? And they start to prepare their war machine. And the song reflects like a certain sense of glee with this. This is it, boys. This is war. This is what we've been waiting for. So you can imagine if you have a whole military industrial complex or a viral industrial complex, you've got Anthony Fauci and Ted Ross and Bill Gates. You, know, you can't tell me Neil Ferguson wasn't waiting for this moment his whole life where he got to tell 50 million people to stay in their homes, right? The power. Um, even got a woman out of it. <laughs> um, so 
what, what happens then? The enemy country, they see the military preparations, they go, they're, they're going to war with us, so they start preparing. And then the first country look over and say, you see, we were right. And it all ends in catastrophe. It all ends. But along the way, there's a line, everyone's a hero, everyone's a Captain Kirk, everyone gets to play out this dramatic narrative of fighting a war, fighting a virus, but it ends with cities turned to dust. Uh, so that's, uh, that's how the, the PCR chapter concludes.